This week for episodes eight and nine, we have the stories of two New Yorkers, both of them sailors and both of them with amazing stories. One tells the story of Shari Deans, who was an artist uh, who worked upstate New York and in the West Village. She was the founder of the Air Inn. And the second story is uh, told by himself, Reed Stowe, who's been an artist in New York for many years and who sailed around the world without uh, touching land for over a thousand days. Uh, Please enjoy these two fascinating histories of art. Thank you for joining us for episode 8 of the Bees and Honey podcast. In this Women in the Art series, we speak to a man, Rip Heyman, who is a natural storyteller. He lived in New York in West Soho when that part of town was deserted and grumpy sailors hung out at the bar on the water near the West Side Highway on Spring Street. Friend and roommate with Hungarian emigre Shari Deans, Rip tells how this artist, who worked all her life in a man's world, founded the Air Inn, a landmark bar still preserved today, and how she created art and influenced great male artists around her, like Jasper Johns. So today I'm here with Rip Heyman, who is uh, one of the owners of the building which houses the Air Inn. The Air Inn is a classic uh, old-fashioned pub that's been here since 17-something, I believe. Anyways, Rip can tell us more about the history of the building, his history in the neighborhood, and also working with the artist uh, Sari Deanst, whose foundation he heads now. Uh, yes, hello, he- hello all out there in audio land. Pardon the birds, but they've come home to roost. <laughs> and yeah, I've been a residence, a resident of the James Brown House, which is mostly known as the the Ear Inn Pub. And as a college student, I moved in here with my buddies back when there was no plumbing or electricity up here. It was about to collapse and be made into a lovely parking lot. When we rented the upstairs six rooms for $100 a month, which we split four ways. So he basically had free rent to live in New York City, but we had an out, we installed an outdoor shower, we finally put in a toilet, but the pipes would freeze. We'd leave every winter because it was uninhabitable, basically. Meanwhile, the pub kept going in the old sailor's pub, which was only open Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. till noon, was the drink, the morning bar, which were all the dock workers and the union guys and the, the bookies and the sailors uh, come off the ships and so there'd be this hubbub in the morning but they only had one kind of beer and two kinds of whiskey and then they served no strangers, no youth, no women and they'd, they'd stare at you like they were gonna <laughs> do something if you came through the door and the only... What year was this? Well this was in, I moved here as a college student in 1973, that's the 20th century I think. <laughs> Yeah. And I was you know, 20 years old when I so I, right, right, right. So yeah, <clears throat> if you looked like you were coming in the door, they would. Oh, they. Yeah, they you know, the only way I got this place is because it was raining so bad one day. I was looking for a cheap place to live downtown where there were all these lofts and all these empty spaces. It was just so, how tough you wanted to pioneer and build a space. And I was going to move to Dumbo to some big empty loft for the same amount of money, hundred dollars a month. With me and my buddies. But then we found this place, and we thought, well, this is a little more central to the city, and. We could do anything we want over here because this is sort of the the end of town. Nobody would went, nobody would come. Mm-hmm. The owner at the time was a woman who had inherited it from her grandfather, 
from he ran the pub before prohibition wow and they turned it into some sort of a spiritual wellness center during prohibition and they added the dining room where the drinking was going on when i when i came in here the there was a pool table and a strong house where the dining room is mm -hmm. and uh no food just mm -hmm. Mean-looking old guys grumbling at her, <laughs> and and uh, so then. Uh, but I said uh, it was raining so much; it was raining all over the bar. And they had buckets all over the place, and the, the bartender, like, God damn it, this, no, 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 ever fix this. So I said, if you let me fix the roof and let me live upstairs, I'll fix it and it won't leak anymore. Well, for many decades, it's still the same deal. We're still trying to make it stop leaking, but we have, of course, a new roof, courtesy of the Glass House, who built this whole back structure, steeled on to the masonry buildings to hold up the house. Wow. So they built this room. It used to be an outdoor uh, roof. Mm -hmm. It used to be a backyard before they put up the dining room downstairs. Mm -hmm. And now we have it as just a guest house and an event space somewhat that's uh, right. mostly uh, continues in its, in its uh, tradition of being a, a flop house, basically. <laughs> but now we have, you know, we have to be dressed right with the right flip-flops to get in. Right, right. Well, now we have all these young UN... Uh, representatives from around the world coming to staying this week. Because mm -hmm. of the convention, yes. And anyway, I had my party here, so yeah. that was a great art event. People yes, I still have your Euros. Batman uh, mask, which I Good. which I uh, wear whenever I go to a UN conference. <laughs> well, tell us about Sari Deans and how it came that you worked with her uh, for some years and what happened when she passed away and the foundation, stuff like that too. I had met Shari Deans, the then 75-year-old artist, at a concert with John Cage, her old friend. And I had already been studying music and producing things, and so Shari knew uh, these people. And but she lived in a had her studio up in Rockland County, about 50 miles north of the city, where Cage lived. Another artist had the commune up there, but she was always couch surfing in the city, and staying when she could, but often she didn't have a place and she didn't drive and she was getting a little older. I said, well, Shari, why don't you take a bedroom here? It only costs you $25 a month, so she did. She was our roommate here for 15 years wow. till into her 90, 92, wow. I think was the last time she was here. Mm -hmm. She died at age 93 mm -hmm. at the, up in her home in Stony Point. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, she was sort of the mentor and brought all kinds of people in here at that time. And we were, let's say, wide-eyed youth uh, doing our thing, but uh, uh, she was sort of our den mother, I'd call it. She'd take us to all kinds of events, and then she would run and host her Wednesday evening poker game here, mm -hmm. which included uh, John Lennon and John Cage, and wow. all these women artists were coming by, and then, um, so she was sort of the, uh, the guiding light here for us uh, coming and going, and then when the owner of the pub was going to retire and sell the place, and he couldn't sell it because it was such a rundown, out of the way place. And so he he was Hungarian though, as was Shari. And mm -hmm. when Shari wanted, he would he would meet her on the street, and then he'd take her into the back room because they wouldn't let her sit at the bar. Because she's a woman. Well, they call her Phyllis Diller because at the time she had a big blondish afro. She called her her, her blonde fro or something Amazing. like that. Amazing. And they thought she was the comedian. And so they'd all, here comes Phyllis. Yeah, go to the back. And so she and Harry, 
they, they love to speak Hungarian. And so then he said, I want to sell the bar. And she said, well, I'll buy. I'll put this guys to work, you know. And so she bought the bar for a song. Amazing. And, um, and so she was actually the founder of the pub as we know it. And right. We, we took out the pool table, much to our regret, mm -hmm. and the, you know, the pinball machines and the and whatever was down there because mm -hmm. we wanted a restaurant. Yeah. Because yeah, it was otherwise we were cooking up here, but it was miles to get any food here. There's no grocery store even for miles. Right no there. restaurants, no and nothing. No, no. There was a diner for the truckers. That's about it. And uh, you know, this place was so back then kind of rough because you had a homeless contingent over here. You had the Westie gang over here. You had the mafia truckers over here, the garbage companies, and the, and the old owner who had never visited here, because she was told, this is not a safe place for a woman to go, and she never was here in her whole life, even though she owned it for, I don't know, 50 years or so. And finally, when we got the restaurant going, we invited her for dinner. And we, you know, I was a cook there, and you know, we had our, what we call, international home cooking, mm -hmm. with the uh, French artist uh, uh, Jean Dupuy and his wife Olga Adorno, uh, uh -huh. as the chefs that I was the sous sous chef chopping and making chocolate mousse every morning that sort of thing but, uh, right. but then the, the the owner was amazed that that, uh, that the place was alive and that suddenly Shari was the queen of the bar and at the time across the street uh, there opened up the feminist art institute and she was one of the marchers guerrilla girls at MoMA and I mean the Shari the, the, the wow. elder was the elder of this particular movement back in the 70s mm -hmm. And this was across the street on Spring Street? On Spring Street, directly across the street. And at that time, we were publishing Ear Magazine, and we had an office across the street again. So we had all these musicians around, all these artists around. The place was packed. Right. And it was kind of very difficult to get much service going on it. Sometimes it got too full in the beginning years. But without her and you know, making a deal in Hungarian, we would have all gone away, and they probably would have torn the place down. Because it was about to fall down. Right. And since then, we every year we do some project and reconstruction, and mm -hmm. it's secure, but it's still a condemned building. Yes. With no CFO, and our main point of this construction is to get fire escapes mm -hmm. to get out of here. Because there's no way you can stop a fire in this house. Yeah, because it's all wood. It's, yeah, this was a kind of building that burned the entire block back in the in the bad old days of, <laughs> of that. And so the right. this house was used as fire training for the rookie fire. Uh, brigade to, mm -hmm. uh, they'd say, get in all your gear, go upstairs and get that baby up in that bedroom. And they couldn't get through the door. They couldn't get, you know, I was like, oh my God, this is, a, man, I hope we never have a fire in here because you can't even get, you know, there was a train to see how dangerous it can be in this yeah. without all the modern, let's say, Equipment. staircases that are wide enough and fire doors and all things that are the safety factor for all the new buildings. Right, but, right. But meanwhile, this. We can stay here and live here, but we cannot rent it out as an apartment. It has no CFO. Right. And uh, and the the pub restaurant operates on a waiver from the Landmarks Commission to the Health Department mm -hmm. of the city agency, saying that it predates all known laws about it. So therefore, we are, I say we are great great grandmothered in, and yeah. any inspector who comes in here, we say. Nothing applies to us except uh, the merriment that keeps the house going. Exactly, exactly. And so tell us about some of the art that Shari left on the walls or what you guys have in the foundation upstate or what, I mean, I saw some works when I first uh, checked out the space a while back, but I can't really remember what her work looks like. Well, she had a long career from uh, when she was a youth in Hungary mm -hmm. and she was kicked out of whatever school 
she was in and she went to study music in Vienna. Then she moved to Paris and was friends with um, Robert Duncan, Isadora Duncan's brother who ran a print shop. And so at a, as a teenager, she started making prints and, and textile designs and and she was running around in Paris in the 1920s. Right. And, and studied with Ferdinand Leger and uh, Georges Braque. Wow. And you know, knew, knew Picasso and this sort of, when she was a young woman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't know if she ever, this is a sideline, uh, she would go down to the bar to meet, meet people and she'd, she'd say, oh, I'm an artist, how about you? And say, oh, do you like art? And, and, and then she said, do, do you really like Picasso? And they say, oh, of course, and so what she do is, Here's a Picasso for you. Oh, okay, okay, like pinch them. Uh, yes, which is, uh, you know, for for an elderly woman to do that to a young man, the men would just blush. Yeah, 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 so, yeah, so yeah, lovely, yeah. Even in the yeah. dark. And how much, I mean, who was selling her work at that time? Did she have a gallery or did she, uh, she sell herself? She was with herself? the Mayer Gallery. She, she was a friend of Max Ernst mm -hmm. and uh, um, Leonard Carrington and then mm -hmm. taught drawing and painting at the Aux Enfants School in Paris, and then mm -hmm. she moved to London and married another Hungarian mm -hmm. who was a mathematician. Mm -hmm. And then she was the director of the art school in London where she hired Henry Moore as an assistant. Now, this is going back to the 30s. Wow. Then the Europe fell into chaos, but um, uh, she came over to New York to open up another branch of this art school. Mm -hmm. And we have correspondence with her in French with the founder of the, in France at the mm -hmm. time. But at that time, she was doing surrealist work. Mm -hmm. A lot of oil paintings and things which we've been restoring now that we found them and, and tried to conserve them. Right. Uh, but uh, so she became a refugee here because her home in London was bombed in the Blitz. And then she was a Hungarian citizen, an enemy alien, so she was not allowed to go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then she became a, part of the refugee European uh, decampment, particularly artists, scientists, writers, there was a lot of them that escaped to here, so that period is now well documented. But she ran mm -hmm. with the Hungarian crowd quite a bit, Andrei mm -hmm. Kurtis, and mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, various other, we find a lot of correspondence, find out more about it, because when she went through, uh, let's see, her kind of struggle to, to survive, she taught at the New School, mm -hmm. she got a studio up on 57th Street, and then um, there was a fire that burned out her studio, and then she decamped to the southwest uh, and knew you know, various of the, you know, Georgia O'Keeffe and others that are down there. Yeah. And then she, she said that going out to the west in that landscape changed her view of, of visuals. So she went from the surrealism, like her ear painting in 1945, yeah. mm -hmm. to sort of abstr uh, abstractionism and printmaking, all right. these different ones that are, yeah. you know, they're, they're kind of, a mixed imagery and she specialized in frottage, rubbing uh, ne uh, negative prints on plaster, things, techniques we still don't know quite how she did it. Right. But she piled up her, her warehouse size stu studio up in Stony Point, New York mm -hmm. to the ceiling with all of her things and um, because she never moved again, she, she gathered quite a bit from her time and so when she died uh, at age 93, let's say she'd been through so many different periods of, of uh, visually and personally. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the artist cooperative community that she was a member of uh, did not want to keep her studio as her own museum. They wanted to clear it out and somebody else moved in. So oh. her, 
uh, she lived there 33 years paying rent on this, but it was a non-equity home for all these artists. So she got her $100 admission fee back after 33 years of paying a mortgage right. and rent. There. Yeah, it was yeah, cheap yeah. rent, but it meant she, she had nothing. We had to pay for her funeral expenses, and then we had to move all of what we could salvage into a shed we built. Yes. And so since then, it's been sitting in a giant pile, and we've been slowly getting it cataloged mm -hmm. and um, you know, get uh, curators to come up. And yeah. So in the last few years, we've had a representative, Pavel Zubok, mm -hmm. who had a gallery in Chelsea. Now he's out on the art fair showing. So she just had a, works out of Chicago. And they're going to have another exhibition for her in Basel. Okay. We placed works with the Whitney and MoMA and mm -hmm. Manel, uh, Hammer Museum and Amazing. Virginia Museum. So the curators mm -hmm. have come and said, well, she was actually there uh, as a, a mentor to others. And the the reason why the, the curators have gotten so interested is because uh, Jasper John, when his retro retrospective said, well, who was your major influence when you were a young artist? He said, well, Shari Deans. And, and the interview said, well, who's that? He said, well, you should go see, you know, see these people. <laughs> have it. And uh, Jap. Jasper Johnson and Robert Rauschenberg used to camp at her studio when mm -hmm. they were working for her, right. and that began their relationship. And then they went on to use many of her techniques and became, let's say, the world's wealthiest uh, artist. Yeah. And she always said, because she was a woman, they never paid attention to her. She was she was a member of the Cedar Tavern Club and, mm -hmm. and Betty Parsons Gallery. She showed with Jackson right. Pollock and all mm -hmm. the other ones at that time, but um, partly because she was somewhat temperamental about mm -hmm doing business yes. that she just never had commercial success but she was always making new things and every decade she came up with a whole different technique often wow wow I mean amazing 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 and did you ever go out sailing with her on because I know you're a big sailor and you had a boat at one point uh, docked outside here on the Hudson uh, River yes I, I would I take her out uh, but uh, mostly up the river where we were which is a little easier because you a small sailboat out of New York Harbor is uh, like going for a, a cruise on a roller coaster. Right. And uh, but she was pretty game. We almost tipped the boat over once, and she thought it was terribly funny. Uh, and tell us about the she, boat that you just had recently, <laughs> the the German one, and the story behind that, because I think it's a great story in general. The clamor, or what was it called? Oh, the again? clang. The clang. Yeah. The clang. Tell us about the clang. Then. Oh, well, we had another little sailboat out here with the River Project and the community, community boat that, again, was getting kicked around too much. So a group of us decided we're going to get a bigger boat so we can have more people to be more stable in the harbor. Mm -hmm. And we found it up in Mystic, or rather up in Essex, Connecticut, mm -hmm. and it was an old wooden yawl that had sunk. And when I first saw it, only the mast was out of the water, but mm -hmm. the price was so such as steel that we said if you fit, if you bring it up and you inspect it, it's okay. We'll buy it for whatever we, whatever we had at the time, mm -hmm. and that began about a fifteen-year restoration project of on this fifty-four-foot overall uh, catch, uh, sorry, yawl-rigged, heavy boat from Jersey, mm -hmm. uh, built in Falmouth, England, and then worked out of Jersey Island in the Channel Islands off the coast of France, and then we found out that it had been part of the evacuations in 1940 and was a decorated veteran of the little ship evacuation of British troops, not at Dunkirk, but from Saint-Malo in the Western Channel. Mm -hmm. And this has led us, uh, and they were, we had a website, we had membership parties and say that we had it out at the Greenport uh, at that uh, 
a green point out on the island. Mm -hmm. the, the harbor was just too rough for it. This boat is built in 1924, so we had it at age where you don't really want to go take granny out in yeah, rough yeah. water and, and just sitting at the mooring off of Manhattan it was uh -huh. just getting beat up by the ferry yeah. so we took it out there as you know mm -hmm. now we've given it to the Jersey Heritage Trust in uh, the Isle of Jersey because they want it as the centerpiece of their museum perfect and it's an operating boat so they were mm -hmm. amazed that it was still out out sailing around mm -hmm. and they we put it up on the heart and they were going to ship it over but then Brexit has fouled up their funding and even Jersey the Isle of Jersey, which is part of the, um, it's an allied crown uh, uh, relationship mm -hmm. dating f from uh, William the Conqueror. So the Isle of Jersey is actually owes allegiance to the Duke of Normandy, which happened to be William the Conqueror. So it's gone down for 900 years that they're part of the family of the British yes. realm, mm -hmm. except when I was there talking about bringing the clang over, they would say, well, we... we with Brexit, we really should just join France again. I mean, they speak French, take the Euro <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. They can see France out yeah, the window, and yeah. so why do we have to be part of those uh, those rabble in London and all that? Rabble but, buzzers, But yeah. then their charity they set up over there to bring the clang over, mm -hmm. it just never has raised money to even get it over there. So it's sitting on the on land and in, in, uh, wrapped up, ready to go in Mystic, Connecticut. Oh, okay. And some people at the seaport up there have been mm -hmm. watching out for it, but... And I have my own little boat. I, you know, I'm out working on ships all the time. Right. Yeah. So when I'm, was your last trip, or when is the next one? Oh, you know, every year I go around the world by sea. Last mm -hmm. trip I was uh, sailing from where did I go, Dubai to Egypt to the Mediterranean. Wow. And later this year, next in the winter, I go on another ship across the Pacific, uh, Tahiti to New Zealand and Australia. That sounds like a great trip too. Well, it's a big ocean out there. Yeah, it's a big ocean, yeah, and we're all trying to keep it clean and alive. Uh, that's right, when, and when the seas do rise, we will have a lovely neighborhood here where there'll be canals, and we'll have gondolas <laughs> and canoes, Uber canoes, and get rid of all this traffic. Venice, Amsterdam, yeah. yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll be as charming as uh, Venice is yeah, when yeah, there's yeah. nobody there. Right, right. I mean, you know, we got our climate change specialists that come in and talk about it, and I show mm -hmm. them our graphic about what how this house will be on a peninsula, and... Canal Street will be a big bay, and a lot mm -hmm. of the village will be underwater, mm -hmm. but it'll be fine. We're just mm -hmm. not sure if we can float to keep up with it, you know? <laughs> detach from our concrete neighbors and right, float right. like a boat here. Absolutely. But anyway, but, Shari's is busier now than she was in her life. Right. And um, so we represent her work, or rather the gallerist does, and mm -hmm. so... Uh, Pavel Zubok. Um, Pavel Zubok. Zubok, yes. Who's okay. a, he was a specialist in collage, and so it's mm -hmm. you, know, you, you being an art curator, you're so mm -hmm. you know it's a very personal business, and uh, yeah. we've um, sold enough work to do a complete inventory of what we can get the scope of her work. Yeah, and so we're, uh, but but you know art history moves in very slow way ways, and right now Pavel is very busy with um, what's her name her. Hermine German, the the uh, collagist. I'm gonna have to search it. I don't uh, know. Well, she does pretty wild assemblages, and, but uh -huh. she's she's taking most of the the oxygen uh, out of the gallery, I'd say, because she's so dramatic. Right. So, well, she, I'm gonna uh, search his program because I know the name, but I don't really know who he shows. 
Well, it's uh, he he does believe that Shari's work was so seminal back way back when, and her mm -hmm. her life is almost uh, the history of 20th century art from the Paris in the 20s to time she spent in Japan and then around here. Mm -hmm. And we've been trying to find a writer who will write her biographer because her life was so dramatic. And then at every decade, there's another visual uh, yeah. legacy of it. Yeah. And, uh, Maybe a student could do a thesis or something on it and make that a book. Well, we've had uh, some of that done, a uh, thesis done at Art Institute of Chicago, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which in by a curator named Kate Zeller, who mm -hmm. after researching quite a while, she said that Shari had a difference because her work was not about herself. And he, she compared him directly against her colleagues, Jackson Pollock and the rest of them, was the abstract, even the abstract expressionists, yeah. they were very, yeah. so personal, this is the way I do it, where Shari was always discovering something and moving on to a different yeah. format, yeah. Yeah. and so she yeah. was somewhat less egoful than yes. particularly Pollock, and she relates the story that once at the Cedar Tavern, mm -hmm. uh, some show at Betty Parsons, uh, Pollock, in his usual drunkenness, said, Shari, the problem with you, you can't really paint because you don't have balls. <laughs> and she replied to him, well, Jackson, that's your problem, not mine. That's brilliant. <laughs> it, it really, and you know, I mean, uh, I love what Jackson did, but I'm sure it was extremely difficult to go around uh, having any sort of conversations with these guys. I mean, I would not have got along in that time either, I'm sure. But is there anything else you wanted to add before we uh, wrap up here? Wrap up. Well, you can look at, uh, particularly for Shari, you can just go shari.deans.org, mm -hmm. S-A-R-I-D-I-E-N-E-S, mm -hmm. and we have news about her, her work, but we keep finding more, the things that we didn't know before. Yeah, that she yeah. didn't ever talk about her past. She was always about the now. Amazing. And she was sort of a Buddhist with, uh, mm -hmm. with her sense of presence, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and then the pubs open. I mean, without her, we this place would not be here. Literally, Amazing. physically, the air in them would not be and here. And so I, I put up the, her, her iconic surreal mm -hmm. ear painting, which mm -hmm. had been burnt and damaged so bad. We, mm -hmm. we, with our what little funds we've been getting from these things, mm -hmm. paying our friends the Garlovans, who were master old master restorationists who worked wow. at the Met, and they they spent six months restoring that painting. Amazing. And then I made a glissé print. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, you know, have sunshine on the original, but uh, you know, we're we're waiting for her retrospective, which is probably going to be in Europe. We've already had a number of European shows and mm -hmm. dedicated shows to her over there. Yeah, we're trying to do it in Budapest actually. Have wow. her home return to Hungary. Yes. But uh, meanwhile, we may have some more in New York. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm not around. It's my wife Barbara who is the curator and knows yes. how all this is going on. We have a board and advisors, yes, but. Yes. Um, she's sort of the, 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 the best ghost in the house, among others. Right. Well, you know, when I heard this story from you, it explained my unexplainable attraction to this place. From the first moment I ever stepped in here, I just, it just felt right. I mean, and knowing the history of it, I, I can see why I would love it. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to sign off. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thank you for being here with us.